Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savages. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. That was uh, that was General Dwight David Eisenhower's D-Day speech. Um, a, an important historical note is that after he wrote that speech, he sat down and wrote his letter of resignation. Dwight Eisenhower was the supreme allied commander over all allied forces. Uh, this included the um, this included Canada, Britain, Aust Australia, and several other countries. Um, when D-Day happened, I know the history books have been rewritten since I was a kid, and some people want to let you believe the uh, Americans were lucky, and we were quite lucky or blessed by Almighty God. Uh, the Germans, the Nazis, you know, very much so were a cult, but I don't want to go that road. Um, when the Americans and their allies rolled up on the beaches of Normandy, first of all, D-Day was supposed to be on June 5th. Okay, but because of bad weather, the mission had to be scrubbed until June 6th. Had it not happened on June 6th, they would have had to wait an entire another month to do this invasion. And God only knows what 
the Nazis could have done in that month. Because the D-Day invasion was the most secret thing during World War II next to the Manhattan Project or the building of the atomic bomb, if you will. The Allies did a lot to make Hitler think that an invasion was going to happen in the north of France and that the Americans and British and other allies were going to come across the English Channel at its narrowest point to France. The narrowest point between England and France uh, is even as far as taking a, uh, a dead body and dressing it up like a spy and putting plans in his briefcase to uh, an invasion in the north. So they made the Germans think there was going to be an invasion in the north. Uh, on D-Day, there were American paratroopers, as you know. Well, some airplanes actually dropped dummies, toy soldiers, if you will, mannequins uh, out of airplanes into northern France to make the Germans think that uh, an invasion was coming from the north. Uh, there were, you know, back then they didn't have satellites. They Everything was done by spy plane. So America enlisted Hollywood to make prop tanks and prop combat trucks and vehicles so that they could park them along the northern coast of England. And so when the German planes flew over, they would see all these tanks and equipment lined up uh, where they thought that the Allied invasion would come. Now, this southern part of France, Normandy, um, was very heavily fortified also. Uh, luckily, Hitler was a maniac, and he insisted on having total control of the German Panzer tanks, which were the most advanced tanks that you could have. And of course, you know, a, a huge gun on wheels is a better weapon than a stationary fortified gun because the guns in the what are called pillboxes uh, along the coast of France, once, you know, the Allies got past that, then it was one-on-one -on -one combat between two guys with rifles, the German and the American, right? So the, the tanks would have turned that tide for the Germans, but Hitler had panzer divisions in the north that never made it to uh, Normandy until it was too late. The Americans were already inland, and our tanks were on the beaches and inland. There was one panzer division on uh, the beaches of Normandy, 
well, near the beaches of Normandy, uh, when there could have been several. Also, the Germans put a lot of uh, uh, these steel uh, X-type things. That's the best way to describe them, for those of you that don't know or have never seen a picture. But they were there... Uh, along the coastline and under the water so that if the American boats got too close, the they would run into these, you know, steel girders, steel beams that were formed like in the shape of an X or an X with a line going through the middle of it. Um, and, you know, of course, it would poke a hole in the boat or the landing craft. Then the Americans had to come up with an ingenuity way to uh, get around those. So the first underwater uh, frogmen, which is the precursor to the Navy SEALs, uh, they were sent in to you know cut these things, these traps. Um, also, the Germans... Uh, you know, mined the coast with anti-shipping mines. Uh, those had to be disabled. Uh, I'm sure some boats still hit them, but nonetheless, this was the largest invasion of its kind, and it could ne it'll never be done again just because technology has changed so drastically. Uh, you know, you can't line thousands of ships up over the horizon and then move them into place under cover of darkness uh, because of, you know, radar and sonar and spy satellites and all those things that every country has now. When these men of, you know, some as young as 15 who you know managed to lie about their age and fake their documentation to go and fight this war because they believed in freedom and liberty and they knew that a world order under germany and japan would be the complete opposite of that it would not be liberty it would not be freedom uh, it would be uh, do as the government says or we kill you. Uh, and, and that's how the Japanese Empire and the Nazi Empire were going to rule. Uh, those of you who are ignoramuses, I, I know American soldiers, I'm old enough to have met and talked to a lot of the greatest generation as they are known the generation that grew up during the great depression and the dust bowl of america and they were hardened tough young men that were able to pull this off now some of them have told me, you know, they saw the plans in Germany. They saw the maps in Japan where 
the Japanese were going to take the United States from west of the Mississippi and the Germans were going to take the United States from the east of the Mississippi. I don't want to go off into that because it's never been historically proven, but it's a folklore of men that were on the ground and were in the Nazi headquarters after the war was over and men that were uh, involved in the um, occupation of Japan and Germany uh, in the post-war years. Um, but the key is, you know, there's a, a lot of misinformation. I gotta relight my cigar. Uh, a lot of misinformation you're being fed these days that, you know, that the Germans were kind of these buffoons that goose stepped around and yes, Lady Luck and God were on the side of the Americans and our allies in this fight, perhaps because Nazi Germany was bent on the destruction of God's people, the Jews. But aside from a biblical lesson, Germany had some of the best scientists of the time. Now, the United States was very lucky that almost all of the Jewish scientists who could escape uh, prior to being murdered and gas chambered were uh, able to come to the United States and work on our side. Uh, they found refuge, you know, after, you know, 1929 when the Nazis started their rise to power. Uh, they found refuge in American uh, universities and schools. And, you know, they taught you know, Albert Einstein and these people, and they, they knew a lot about physics and math and uh, so on and so forth. But uh, that, that's another story. This um, Nazi war machine had some of the best fighter airplanes. So when the United States would uh, go on its bombing runs, during the daylight so they could see their targets better. The first American planes were torn to pieces. And then very quickly, the United States, um, and don't forget about the Japanese Zero fighter, the Japanese Zero was a very advanced uh, warplane, uh, but the, sticking to the German, the Luftwaffe was very advanced, and it wasn't until the United States developed the Mustang airplane 
with the Merlin Rolls-Royce engine uh, from England that we were able to have fighter planes that could outmaneuver Japanese Zeros and German Luftwaffe planes. Uh, and then the Americans were able to bomb deeper into Germany and bombard German factories. Uh, we all hear and talk about these evil assault rifles. The term assault rifle, one thing, there is no gun in America that's classified as an assault rifle. The term comes from Nazi Germany. They developed the first assault rifle. Now, some American soldiers did have Thompson submachine guns, but the weapon of preference was uh, a Browning semi-automatic rifle. And this was a rifle that carried a cartridge. Uh, it was manually loaded and bolt action fired. Um, the assault rifles that the Germans came up with could fire with each squeeze of the trigger with no bolt action. Um, that means you slide a bolt back and forth to load the next bullet. Okay. <coughs> the Germans came up with a rifle that could be fired with every squeeze of the trigger, or it could be switched into full automatic mode and you can hold the trigger in and it would just fire until you ran out of bullets. Uh, Hitler, for some reason, did not like these guns, so he didn't put them into full production. Had he, the outcome of the war would have been completely different. I'm sorry to say. Um, we may have dropped the atomic bomb on Berlin instead of Hiroshima. That would have been one different outcome. But many, many more Americans would have died and so the tide of war could have shifted drastically uh toward the end of the war th this assault rifle of the germans was put into more use but by then so many german factories had been bombed and bombarded that production was very limited so Thank God that assault rifle never took shape. Um, another thing, you know, the, the Panzer tanks I was talking about were the best tanks. They were heavily armored. They were fast. They had huge cannons on them uh, and could, you know, slice through the smaller but faster American tanks. America just built and built and built through our robust uh, economic and industrial power, tank after tank, and eventually we overwhelmed the Germans uh, because, again, through air bombardment, aerial bombing, bombing from airplanes, however you want to say it, we took out their ability to produce more equipment. And... They didn't have a lot of allies on their side. Uh, you know, Russia was coming at them from one direction. The United States and Britain from another direction. 
had Hitler slowed his role and not been such a madman, things might have been different also. But he wanted to see a Third Reich in his lifetime. So he fast-forwarded through a lot of things. But some of the best planes... They had the Germans had a rocket-powered airplane that could outfly and outmaneuver, you know, any American or British airplane. It didn't stay in the air very long because it was rocket-powered and it would quickly lose its, it would burn its fuel up quickly. But for that few minutes that it was in the air, it could do a significant amount of damage. But luckily, they were not able to produce them, and they weren't effective on a large scale. But the Germans were developing jet airplanes, and had you know, had they not, not had the Americans and British and everyone not bombed so many of their airplane factories and you know landing strips and you know uh, air force bases. And, you know, the Germans had time to develop that jet fighter. That would have been a total different outcome to the war also. So these brave men, some teenagers, stormed up this beach, okay? And the Germans could see them coming. There was no stealth technology Yes, the Germans were awed and surprised to see thousands of ships pull up over the horizon that morning, the 6th of June, D-Day. But when it came time to fight, it was, okay, German, we're going to shoot a rope ladder up this mountain, up the side of this cliff, where you're standing, shooting down at us with, you know, rifles and machine guns. And, you know, sometimes the Germans would cut the rope, rope ladder and the American or, you know, British or whoever would just go crashing to the rocks below. But the, they kept going. They kept going forward because they believed in freedom they believed in liberty, that all the things that we take for granted nowadays, and that these guys believed in that as much as the Germans believed that, you know, Hitler and the Nazi party were the supreme beings. American men and women believed that God was the supreme being and that they were on a mission to liberate the world from this evil regime that was killing people. And this is something we've lost in the revised history of America and of World War II. And sadly, the men that can tell the story firsthand are almost completely gone. We, we lose, you know, World War II soldiers daily. Uh, World War II veterans, pardon me. Um, and eventually that generation is going to die out. But it's up to us that 
knew them and have, you know, all these things to carry that on and carry that, that lesson on, you know, and, and it's difficult when the history books have been rewritten and teachers want to teach differently now, uh, and, you know, say that, you know, well, you know, uh, what's his name? Franklin Roosevelt knew that the attack on Pearl Harbor was coming and he let it happen so that he could get into World War II. Well, thank God that he that we got into World War II. You know, we saved the world. <laughs> you know, and whatever. I'm a I'm cocky American. No, I'm a realist. You know. It, this is just real, raw and real and the way that it was. Uh, you know, our guys, our people had to develop things like landing craft that never existed before. Y you know, we had to have a way to get soldiers from ships far off the coast that, you know, couldn't pull right up to the beach at the time. And they had to get on these smaller landing craft and hopefully not get blown out of the water by a German artillery shell. And if they got past that, hopefully not get uh, gunned down by German machine gun fire as they were getting off the landing craft and then wade through waist-high water to get more machine gun fire and more mortar and mortared mortar shelled on the beach, you know. And then they had to fight their way up cliffs where the Germans were standing at the top shooting down at them. You know, this was this took a level of bravery that's in, incomprehensible, you know. And I just want to you know, put this podcast out there so that, you know, that little piece of history is not lost and forgotten. And uh, in the next couple of days, I'm going to do more of these podcasts uh, and get this out there and, you know, get a piece of history out there on uh, the Anchor app and on Spotify uh, so that, you know, it's not lost and forgotten. I got firsthand knowledge from my grandfather um i'm gonna try to play for you i gave you the american uh leaders uh speech i want you to hear from let me turn john mellencamp off the uh king george the sixth D-Day speech. I don't know if I've ever even heard this. And I'll end the podcast with this. This is London calling in the overseas service of the BBC. Calling New Zealand, Australia, the Far East, India, Persia and Iraq, East Africa, the Near East, Italy, North Africa, Malta, Gibraltar, and the whole of the Mediterranean area. Central Africa, South Africa, 
West Africa, Canada, the United States of America, the British West Indies, Central America, and South America. In a few moments, we shall hear His Majesty the King. This is London. In a few moments, His Majesty the King will speak to his people at home and overseas. He will also be heard throughout the United States of America. Four years ago, our nation and empire stood alone against an overwhelming enemy with our backs to the wall, tested as never before in our history, in God's providence, we survived that test. The spirit of the people, resolute, dedicated, burnt like a bright flame, lit surely from those unseen fires which nothing can quench. Once more, a supreme test has to be faced. This time, the challenge is not to fight to survive, but to fight to win the final victory for the good cause. Once again, what is demanded from us all is something more than courage, more than endurance. We needed a revival of spirit, a new unconquerable Resolve. After nearly five years of toil and suffering, we must renew that crusading impulse on which we entered the war and met its darkest hour. We and our allies are sure that our fight is against evil and for a world in which goodness and honor may be the foundation of the life of men in every land. That we may be worthily met with this new summons of destiny, I desire solemnly to call my people to prayer and dedication. We are not unmindful of our own shortcomings and presence. We shall ask, not that God may do our will, but that we may be enabled to do the will of God. And we dare to believe that God has used our nation and empire as an instrument 
Baptist of the liberation of Europe, where may be offered up earnest, continuous, and widespread prayer. We, who remain in this land, can most effectively enter into the suffering of subjugated Europe by prayer, whereby we can fortify the determination of our sailors, soldiers, and airmen who go forth to set the captives free. The Queen joins with me in sending you this message. She well understands the anxieties and cares of our women folk at this time. And she knows that many of them will find, as she does herself, fresh strength and comfort in such waiting upon God. She feels that many women will be glad in, in this way to keep vigil with their men as they burn of the ships storm the beaches and fill the skies. At this historic moment, surely not one of us is too busy, too young, or too old to play a part in a nationwide, a worldwide vigil of prayer as the great crusade set forth. If from every place of worship, from home and factory, from men and women of all ages, and many races and occupations, our intercessions rise, then, but please God, both now and in the future, and not remote, the predictions of an ancient psalm may be fulfilled. The Lord will give strength unto his people. And the Lord will give his people the blessing of peace.